0: Hello, and welcome to the Tea Leaves podcast, where we bring Asia to you through conversations with the people whose lives and work are shaping the Indo-Pacific region.
1: There's a lot of focus on invasion and amphibious assault in the public rhetoric. China has a wide array of capabilities at their command in space in cyber with uh, really profound rocket forces and air forces and things like that. It's not all about an amphibious invasion. So I think we should be looking at a much wider portfolio when it comes to the kinds of capabilities and capacities that Taiwan needs in order to deter. If we don't engage economically, if we don't engage diplomatically, if we don't have the kind of military capability that we need in the region to help deliver on a free and open Indo-Pacific, then the People's Republic of China will dictate the terms to the other nations in the region. And I think that would be to the detriment of U.S. prosperity and security during the course of the next several decades.
0: I'm Rexon Yu, president at The Asia Group.
2: And I'm Cherian Anchor at Bloomberg Television's Daybreak Asia and Daybreak Australia.
0: Today, we're pleased to be joined by Admiral Phil Davidson, who served as the 25th Commander of the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command, based in Hawaii, from 2018 to 2020. Before leading Indo-PACOM, Admiral Davidson held U.S. Navy leadership roles in North America, Europe and Africa.
2: A graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy and Naval War College, Admiral Davidson served in multiple policy, strategy, and operations roles. This included service as senior military advisor to the Special Representative for Afghanistan and Pakistan at the State Department, Deputy Director for Strategy and Policy in the Joint Staff, and as the Navy's military aide to the Vice President of the United States. Thank you very much for joining us today.
1: Thank you. It's my pleasure. It's good to see you both.
0: Admiral Davidson, let's jump in. Lots of headlines in the last few days about Asia, and in particular, Taiwan, which I know featured prominently in your thinking, in your strategic focus, contingency planning when you led INDOPACOM. President Biden made a striking statement uh, while he was in Asia regarding his commitment that the United States would come to the defense of Taiwan if it were attacked by China. And there's uh, a lot of talk here in Washington uh, and beyond about how that is a shift in U.S. policy, even as the president reiterated other key aspects of the United States policy towards Taiwan and China. But fundamentally, a little bit of news that the long-standing policy of strategic ambiguity with respect to Taiwan has changed. How do you assess the president's comments and your reaction, having led the regional command uh, for the Indo-Pacific to what the president said?
1: You know, as the military commander at U.S. Indo-Pacific Command, you know, I long felt the obligations of the Taiwan Relations Act and the burdens of uh, the required planning that goes on for any military organization um, and what it might mean for the United States and of course our allies in the Indo-Pacific as well. So the president has made those uh, comments uh, at least twice, I know, in the last six or seven months. I I think he feels that uh, commitment as well. But, you know, it's up to the president and his team to clarify what its intent was.
2: He's actually had to clarify himself about four times, even calling Taiwan independent, right, since he took office?
1: Well, I mean, that's his prerogative. He's the president of the United States.
2: So what do you make of these comments this time around? Do they have deeper significance, especially given that the White House later clarified that it would be sort of the type of help that perhaps Ukraine is getting from the United States?
1: Well, I mean, we've had a long tradition of foreign military sales to Taiwan. We've been encouraging them uh, on what those articles should be, for example. We at U.S. Indo-Pacific Command have long provided oversight, training support, and understanding to their capstone exercise, military exercise every year. You know, these are important elements of what I think is outlined in the Taiwan Defense Act and, you know, serves our obligation when we talk about those commitments in the region.
0: Sherry just touched on, I think, a really important debate that is also being discussed Extensively here in the news among experts within the government in Congress. And that is that there are lessons and implications to be learned from Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I'm personally quite cautious on what clear or unambiguous lessons can be learned here. But I would like, Admiral, to hear your perspective on whether there are lessons from the ongoing conflict in Ukraine that we should import uh, for Taiwan into Asia?
1: Yeah, I think there are a couple of near-term lessons, uh, particularly when it comes to deterrence and the type of aid that we provided Ukraine over the last 10 years or so, and whether it was sufficient in deterring. It's, I think, still to be known whether the West meant to deter Putin, whether Putin was just not deterrable. And I think we're a long way from knowing that the aid that we're delivering now to Ukraine, what that outcome will mean for Ukraine itself. Uh, But we do know this already. Ukraine is in ruins, right? 3.5 million refugees have been cast across Eastern Europe and the Caucasus. And we've got thousands, thousands, tragically, dishearteningly um, dead. And we've got the disruption of the global economy. We have, you know, the outright attack on another sovereign state. In other areas, we have a long ways to know, to learn uh, what lessons might be available to us at that point. I I certainly think that China is sitting back watching how the, the Western world has responded, watching how Russia's armed forces are performing. I think there are lessons also to be learned on the, as I mentioned before, what Taiwan's needs might actually be in order to prevent either a coercive outcome when it comes to the People's Republic of China or a direct conflict itself.
0: Can I follow up, Admiral, because I think you're getting at the heart of, of one of the debates here. Biden administration has set out overall for the region a strategic focus on integrated deterrence, preventing conflict from a position where, of strength with our partners and allies. And you've highlighted that as an important aspect for Taiwan. But there's also this conversation that I find very interesting when it comes to the specifics on Taiwan, that there's this analogy made that the overriding focus should be to make Taiwan like a porcupine and based on the premise that the scenario to focus on is an all-out amphibious invasion. And that has shaped the current U.S. approach to defense priorities for Taiwan. I feel that there is incongruence here, but I'd love for your reaction and how you think about the question of deterrence, the stated policy of integrated deterrence and how to approach uh, strengthening Taiwan's military power vis-a-vis China.
1: Well, I I think we have several commitments at play here. You know, first is to prevent a coercive outcome. That means absolutely deterring any kind of conflict or military adventurism that would involve the panoply of ways in which China could cause or try to inspire a way to get Taiwan to submit. You know, the general erosion of Taiwan's conventional day to day deterrent capability, you know, fighter aircraft and ships that can respond to air defense identification zones, incursions, you know, aircraft that would have to respond there to that, the long term maintenance needs to help those aircraft. Maintain their readiness status and things like that. These all speak to, you know, you have to be able to deter with conventional capabilities as as well. I think the porcupine uh, theory is actually a subset of what we need to do when we talk about deterring to uh, deny or prevent and being able to actually impose cost once you know, an invasion begins. And again, there's a lot of focus on invasion and amphibious assault in the public rhetoric. China has a wide array of capabilities at their command in space, in cyber, with um, really profound rocket forces and air forces and things like that. It's not all about an amphibious invasion, so I think we should be looking at a much wider portfolio when it comes to the kind of capabilities and capacities that Taiwan needs in order to deter.
2: How much of a common understanding is there between Taiwan and the White House on what type of deterrence they actually need to build?
1: Well, you know, I, th- I think this discussion goes uh, wider than than the White House. I mean, there's been a lot of commentary you know, all across Washington, both in and out of government, are the type of needs that Taiwan uh, has and what we should be shaping it to. But again, I think we should be looking at a much uh, wider portfolio capability. to make sure that Taiwan has the capability in a day-to-day way that prevents China from both coercive and direct conflict with Taiwan.
2: Boosting that, wouldn't that also anger Beijing?
1: Well, I mean, that's all part of the calculus, right, that uh, Washington is going through, I think, on a very frequent basis.
0: I hear you, Admiral, in your comments, juxtaposing kind of these essential elements of military power that, you know, are critical for the foreseeable future um, in all of the scenarios up to and including an all-out conflict. But I hear you juxtaposing... Those requirements against this, the other sort of notion that gets talked about conceptually a lot here in uh, the United States around the need for asymmetric capabilities. Can you just unpack that a little bit for us in in your views?
1: Well, you know that's connected to uh, those who advocate, you know, solely making Taiwan uh, porcupine. Again, that's that's a subset of the larger deterrent capability and. And I would say certainly Taiwan does have some needs uh, for their asymmetric portfolio, coastal defense, cruise missiles, certainly sea mines and things like that. But you can't solely have systems that have utility after the attack begins. You have to have some capabilities that causes the political uh, leadership of your potential adversary pause, right? Really, what you want to do is you want to see the array of capabilities out there. You want to see the array of capabilities in the battle space, to use the military term, that would prevent that potential adversary from actually going in the first place.
0: And just as a, a follow-up, Admiral, to your point, you know, an, an interesting dimension here is that, you know, there's this discussion around Specific capabilities you mentioned a few that would seem very relevant for coastal and homeland defense, but then there's also the the question if you look at uh, modern high end capable militaries and perhaps set aside the United States for a second, but let's take Japan, which may well be you know a country in the fight or certainly relevant here that. There's, there are enabling capabilities for countries to project power, for countries to track, monitor, detect, and have early warning. I assume you agree because it would seem logical that this array of capabilities is also critical for Taiwan, as they are for Japan, for Australia, for, for you know, any ally that I think you could identify of ours around the world.
1: Yeah, no, I, uh, I absolutely believe that, uh, you know, part of the deterrent capability that Taiwan should be procuring for themselves and hoping that others will recommend to them is, you know, runs the panoply of deterrence capability. That includes the kind of conventional capability like ships, aircraft and, and submarines uh, provides. They have to have some kind of offensive capability associated with all that stuff as well as some of the asymmetric capability that's been advocated. And, you know, I helped advocate for as the indo pacific commander as well. They need the full portfolio of capability in order to deter both, again, coercive action uh, in the day-to-day gray zone hybrid peacetime environment, depending on what your perspective is and your, your own lexicon. Um, but they also have to have to have some asymmetric capability that would integrate well with potential allies and partners in the region that might come to Taiwan's aid.
2: How significant was the Quad meeting this time around during President Biden's trip in Asia in sort of fortifying some of those alliances of, you know, democratically minded allies?
1: Well, you know, I I think the press towards a more Quad-like approach in the Indo-Pacific I think, serves the needs of the free and open Indo-Pacific vision that the four countries in question have actually all articulated in one way or another. Said another way, we have overlapping interests. They're not all aligned, but a continuing dialogue here will help. I think certainly in the early days of, however, you know, it kind of depends on where you sit on how you think about the quad and whether it's, kind of resumed activities or whether it's started anew. Um, but at least there's some economic and diplomatic uh, alignment there. I would like to see deeper integration in a quad like fashion in a security in the security realm, I should say. But I think we're a long way from actually having all four of those orbits align in a way in which um, we're working in a consolidated fashion together. But who doesn't want this diamond of democracies, right, working in the region on the idea of a free and open Indo-Pacific?
2: They came up with uh, ways to cooperate on the Indo-Pacific Partnership for Maritime Domain Awareness. Could you explain this to us for our listeners, what would this entail and how significant it is?
1: Well, it's it's certainly to advance the understanding of what's happening in the maritime domain, right? What is actually happening on the surface of the sea and on the sea and what it might mean to other nations uh, beyond the quad and the region. And it gives you insight to everything from, you know, illicit fishing, illicit trafficking, whether it's narcotics or human trafficking, all the way up to, you know, what kind of warships Coast Guard vessels, organized militia are operating at sea. For many of the nations in the Pacific, having that understanding of what's happening in their EEZ, particularly when it comes to IUU fishing in the region, I, I think is uh, really important for them to have. And it's something that uh, other Pacific Island nations are asking, uh, not only the United States, but certainly uh, Australia and Japan for. They're asking for some assistance there. And India, you know, has a strong presence in the South Pacific. When I say presence, I mean actually cultural ties uh, in the South Pacific as well. And, you know, would be able to bring, I think, some sophisticated understanding there and assistance.
0: Admiral, when you were commander, what was your experience engaging, interacting with Chinese officials, military or civilian we
1: hosted the Indo-Pacific Chiefs of Defense Conference every year. Uh, we would do it, you know, alternating years in the United States or in one of our allied and partner countries. We always invited PRC Chief of Defense, the PRC Chief of Defense. They never sent the PRC Chief of Defense. They always sent a senior military official. Um, that was typically the time in which I engaged with those senior officials uh, the shangri law Dialogue was a, was another opportunity. That's right around the corner for all the Indo-Pacific nations. Very important uh, security dialogue that happens on an annual basis in Singapore. Uh, so I met with them quite frequently. And frankly, at the Chiefs of Defense Conference, uh, they had the opportunity to interact with all the other Indo-Pacific chads in the region.
0: As a follow-up, Admiral, what is your assessment of China's longer-term strategic objectives vis-a-vis the United States and in the region.
1: I appreciate that. I I think the general public doesn't always uh, consider the very long view of the People's Republic of China. They've articulated pretty well over the last couple of years, their 100-year trajectory. And um, as they point towards 2049, they've made clear that their long-term designs is to displace the international order and replace it with one with what they call uh, Chinese characteristics, but which I more, I believe, accurately describe as the party's uh, characteristics. And one needs to only look at the strategic signs uh, that have rolled out, particularly in the last 10 years or so, right? You have to just the staggering, staggering growth in its armed forces. Um, as just one example, at the turn of this century, there were just a few dozen ships in the Chinese Navy. Now they're pushing 400. Uh, they have staggering growth in long-range air forces, in their strategic uh, rocket forces, their cyber forces, their space forces. Uh, they're doing much more sophisticated exercises and operations in the Western Pacific Even sending ships uh, around the globe, around Africa, certainly off the coast of Hawaii during my tenure and things like that. You have the militarization of artificial features in the South China Sea. You have the co-bomber flights of Russia and Chinese aircraft just during the president's uh, visit to Japan in the last several days. You have the implementation of a national security law in Hong Kong. You have the conflict along the line of actual control uh, with India. You have the enslavement of the Uyghurs in uh, Xinjiang province. It goes on and on and on. And one need only to look at what that closed and authoritarian regime led by Chairman Xi is doing in China and not to be concerned about the idea of a free and open Indo-Pacific. And this is why I think the United States engagement uh, in the region, this is why I think that the development of organizations like the Quad, this is why I believe our deep bilateral alliances in the Western Pacific led by our US-Japan alliance is so important to the security of the United States and I would submit to our prosperity in the future as well. If we don't engage economically, If we don't engage diplomatically, if we don't have the kind of military capability that we need in the region to help deliver on a free and open Indo Pacific, then the People's Republic of China will dictate the terms to the other nations in the region. And I think that would be to the detriment of U.S. prosperity and security during the course of the next several decades.
0: It's such a a powerful. Statement Admiral of the some of the realities here that I think underline some of the day to day developments that we can easily overlook. You emphasized, among other things, the role that our alliances play, the role that other core partners play. Uh, We focused a lot today on Taiwan and China in conversation uh, with Sherry and me. I hope to have you on. Again, soon to unpack more the outlook on the alliance side of the house, you know, and not just up in Northeast Asia with Japan and Korea, but with Australia, with our uh, historical allies in Southeast Asia, the strategic partnership in India, all of which fell under your purview. So, a lot more to to cover. Love to have you back on for a, a follow on conversation. But thanks so much for joining us today, Admiral. We really appreciate it.
1: Oh, thank you very much, Rex, And I appreciated the opportunity. Thanks to uh, Sherry as well.
0: And thank you to our listeners. Please be sure to rate and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also access the full video of our conversation on the Asia Group's YouTube channel. We'll see you next time on Tea Leaves.